Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This episode is the first part of our our two-episode series about written comedy, you know, like books and stuff. Uh, The guest this week is is arguably the, the most prominent humorist of at least my lifetime, David Sedaris. I've always wanted to have David on since the very beginning when I made a list of people to have on the show. Partly because when I decided I wanted to try to be a writer, I like immediately bought a bunch of his books. But also, I, I think he has sort of an underrated influence on modern comedy. I think the the things that he did on This American Life influence a lot of comedic storytelling, like most obviously microbiglia, but I think you see it with a lot of comedians and how they structure stories and the balance of humor and, and sentimentality. That said, I, I was always really nervous to have him on because he's David Sedaris. Um, and that really changed when um, past guest Joel Combooster reached out to me on Twitter to tell me that he did a panel with David Sedaris. And afterwards, David was like, oh, I'm, I'm already familiar with your work because I've heard about you on the podcast Good One. So apparently, David is a fan of this podcast. It's, it's one of the things you have in common with David Sedaris. So when I heard he was promoting his recently released Greatest Hits collection, Best of Me, I reached out. Yeah, as, as a listener, David came in with very specific jokes he wanted to talk about. Um, there are two jokes from diary entries he's written over the last decade or so. Though these jokes will, will probably never end up in a, a proper essay, though I imagine he'll put them in his uh, his second collection of diary entries he's currently working on um i think they do reveal a lot about his incredibly specific process where he tries out all of his writing in front of an audience not unlike a stand-up comedian would but it does mean we don't exactly start with the joke as we usually do but i think it'll be okay so here is david sedaris I am here with David Sedaris. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jesse. Um, so 
we're going to talk about some jokes that you want to talk about. But since this is the beginning, I want to talk a little bit about beginnings uh, and how you approach beginnings in your stories. Um, in your master in your master class, you offered three openings of the same story: understanding, understanding owls which was published in The New Yorker in 2012 and in your collection, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, uh, and then also in The Best of Me. So I was wondering, I have it printed out, if you could read the, the opening of the three versions you presented. Sure. On a high shelf in our Paris bedroom, there's an illustrated book with a catchy title, Understanding Owls. Hugh bought it maybe ten years ago, and though I rarely open the thing, I refer to it constantly. You know, I'll say there's something about owls that I just don't get. I wish there was somewhere I could turn for a little help. Next version. Doesn't it sometimes happen that you look around your house and find that it's been completely overtaken by owls? That's how it was with me, and it came as a real shock. I said to Hugh, how did this happen? Final, does there come a day in every man's life when he looks around and says to himself, I've got to weed out some of these owls. I can't be alone in this, can I? And of course you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Therefore you keep the crocheted owl given to you by your second youngest sister and accidentally on purpose drop the mug that reads Owl Love You Always and was sent by someone who clearly never knew you to begin with. I mean mugs with words on them. Owl cop. Cocktail napkins stay because everyone needs napkins. Ditto the owl candle. Owl trivet take to the charity shop along with the spool-sized Japanese owl that blinks his eyes and softly hoots when you plug him into your computer. Um, thank you. Can you can you explain the evolution and, and how it reflects what you want from an opening of a story? Golly, that's a good question. I wonder if I can answer it. Um, huh. Gee, on the high shelf of our Paris bedroom, there's an owl book. I think the thing there was that the story took place in London, and I felt like opening it in Paris would mm. be – people would think, wait a minute, I thought you lived there. Um, doesn't it sometimes happen that you look around your house and find that it's been completely overtaken by owls? Um huh. And I guess I just thought, does there come a day in every man's life – when he looks around and says to himself, I've got to weed out some of these elves, which was sort of the most ridiculous. Yeah, and so it's I a, think it's that a height, was, more heightened version than the previous version. Um, but that often happens when I'm working on something. I, I can't really proceed. You, you know, like sometimes you turn something into an editor and they say, well, you know, we just reworked the front page. <laughs> and then I think, well, then I'll just, just forget it and I'll write something completely new because yeah. I don't know how to write a new first page. I mean, it all comes from the first sentence. Yeah. So that happens quite often. You know, I sort of think, does that sound like an opening line? And then I think, no, it doesn't it doesn't sound like enough of one. Do you it's interesting how you describe it and, and I know some writers I'm a writer that does this. I know I have editors who tell people to essentially write an opening paragraph and throw it out and then start with their second paragraph. Because a lot of writers just riff for the first paragraph. Um, but I find it's better to have a sentence you like and then essentially like what I call like right downhill from it, where it's where it's like, oh, we started here, so there's a certain mon momentum. Is it like that for you? I like that phrase, writing downhill. <laughs> I'm going to write it down. It's a good, uh, yeah, I feel like it all springs from uh, having the right opening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I... Uh, 
And, I, you know, there's a way you're taught to write, and that's having a topic sentence, yeah. right? And it takes a long time to unlearn that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at student writing, I'm not a teacher, but, you know, people send me stuff. Uh, you just see it crippling so many essays. I kind of like it. I almost like The Simpsons. And yeah. one of the reasons I like The Simpsons is that I defy you to watch the first few minutes and know where it's going. And I like that it just sort of kind of leads into the story and and it's not the story that you expect. And I like that with an essay too. And sometimes, you know, if, if people are like really urgent for time, you mm-hmm. know, then they're like, well, no, just get, get to the point. And it's like, I don't want to get to the point. Was that something you realized you liked? Like you were like, oh, I, I, I want to have a space before we get to whatever the plot is that is still the tone or like the sort of idea or the humor of this thing? Is it like a, a realization you made at some point throughout? Do you remember making the realization? Did it come from seeing The Simpsons? Uh, maybe it did come from seeing <laughs> The Simpsons. I, I think it, well, when I when I was doing stuff for This American Life, you know, they would give you a theme. Mm. And then I feel like a lot of times Ira just wants to get right into the story. And so I just found that I liked not doing that, you know? I yeah. kind of liked... Um, it was a real treat to just kind of write something without thinking, you know, with, with thinking, let's say that it was going to be in the New Yorker mm-hmm. where they've never said to me, uh, can you, this is fine, but can you lose a page? Like they've never, whereas when I wrote for Esquire, often they'd get an ad. <laughs> that sounds so old, doesn't it? Getting an ad in a magazine. Um, and then they would say, we have to cut 200 words which was actually fantastic experience, mm-hmm. you know? You, I imagine a lot of writers, I mean, I experienced this where you, you're like, well, nothing can be cut out of this. And then someone cuts out 200 words. You're like, I don't even remember what those words were. Usually if they cut it out, then I remember it. Got but it. if they say to me, okay, you have to, like I've been doing this thing for CBS Sunday Morning, right? And so they have these these short essays and they can be about whatever I want. So I turned eight of them in. And then they said, oh, these are all great, but each one of them needs to lose like a page and a half. And I did it. And I yeah. felt like at the end that I didn't even notice what was missing, but it did hurt a lot. Because usually when you have to do that, you're cutting out a lot of the mood, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. is just like a, a detail that, you know, uh, if, if I were to say, uh, I met Jesse yesterday his girlfriend only has six fingers. I we you know, we sat down for an interview. I mean, I don't know that your girlfriend has six fingers, she but does not. <laughs> it's nice to have a, you know, just to have throw something in there. Mm-hmm. This just makes you a little more of a interesting person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, that's the kind of thing often that needs to go when you're. But in on your own time, you're like, this is my time. I'm going to write it. I'm going to have these moments that are. For you, and so you have complete control over sort of the tone of the thing. Um, so well, before we get to sort of the jokes that are that are from your diary, uh, I do feel like we need to put your diary in the context of your process larger because I think of what you refer to as your diary isn't like what I think of as a diary or a lot of people think of a diary, which is maybe the thing you write at the end of the day. You're like, today I had peas, and then for dinner I stubbed my toe or whatever. Um, so I want to start with your notebook. Can you explain how to use your notebook? And you can can you tell me, for example, 
things you've written down in your notebook today? Uh, today, what did I write down today? Uh, oh, Hugh sewed a button on my shirt. I, I lost a button on a shirt, and I said, God damn it, I lost my button. He said, give it to me, I'll, I'll find a button, and I'll sew it on. And he did that. And I just thought, that's why. That's why I'm with him. That's <laughs> just such a lovely thing for somebody to do for somebody else. Uh, I wrote writing downhill mm -hmm. <laughs> because you just told me that. I mean, I don't have much in there for today. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, I mean, there's plenty of – I was in uh, – like so this notebook I started like, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I was in Louisville, Kentucky. And there are a lot of political signs in people's yards, but there are also a lot of signs – that say be kind and uh, love on people out loud. Mm -hmm. And then a woman had a sign in her yard that said, I dare you to catch me not smiling, <laughs> which is just like competitive mm -hmm. uh, friendliness, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, gosh. Um, oh, I met somebody who mixes goldfish crackers with grapes. Don't you think that's weird? She yes. said, I don't put them in a bowl together, but I put them in my, in my mouth at the same time. That's even odder. That means she has two bowls. Yes. So I just sort of write down things that I find exciting or surprising. And then I sit down the next morning and I look at my list and I think, okay, what's my lead story for today? Mm -hmm. So – do you feel like that diary writing is writing? Do you feel like it is that part of your process? Like, is that writing the same writing that you do when you are, air quotes, writing, capital W, writing? I count it as writing. Like, if I say, well, I sat at my desk and I wrote for four hours today, I count the hour that I wrote in my diary as writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you never – it doesn't always wind up somewhere else, but often um, – often – you know, there was some one of those CBS essays pretty much came from my diary. Mm -hmm. uh, so often something will happen, and especially if it's not a huge news day. You know, I can kind of go into detail about, you know, an overheard conversation maybe or, you know, all kinds. It's usually not terribly interior. Yeah. You know, I don't write about my feelings. I tend to write about, you know, the world around me and mm – -hmm. And if worse comes to worse, you know, you just read the paper and write about that. So uh, we're now at the diary section of the interview. So you sent over two diary entries you wanted to speak about. You know, because I don't – I'm not a comedian. And so the closest I ever come is you – know, I go on these lecture tours. Yeah. I mean I haven't gone on one in a while. <laughs> And I read and I end the evening by reading from my diary. And I don't have the diary in my hands. I don't and I don't read you know, I if I write something in it, I think, gosh, I bet that would work on stage. Then I write it on a sheet of paper, you know, I print it out. But then often, you know, the thing I'll put it next to, it isn't it's not a chronological mm -hmm. necessarily. So I'll take something from let's say 2016 and put it next to something that happened yesterday and then follow it with something that happened last year. Like a, one would argue a comedian would, which is sort of you're, you're orchestrating the by joke. I don't know what the word would be. The joke, what jokes fit together opposed to, or they're funnier than necessary. Like they're funny focused, these diary entries, I assume. 
Yeah, yeah, they tend to be. I mean, I want laughs. Yeah. <laughs> and what they do is they sort of erase the rest of the evening. And they clear people's minds completely. I, I can count on one hand, and I've been going on tour forever, and I can count on one hand the people who have come up and said, oh, I really, really enjoyed that first essay that you read. And I mean, I sit and sign books for like six hours yeah. afterwards. There's plenty of opportunity for them to say that. But usually the diary just wipes their yeah, yeah. memory clear. And I just thought these were interesting ones for different reasons. Sure. April 4th, 2014, Rackham, West Sussex. A few days back, I met a woman who'd just gone on a date with a man she had met online. He mentioned over dinner that he had a fear of the C word, she told me, and before I had time to think, I leaned across the table and said, cunt? Actually, I was thinking commitment, he said. So do you, I want to ask this a little bit before this one. What is What was the story around that story? How did that come up? Uh, a woman came out to sign books and we were just talking and I think I asked if she was in a relationship and she said no and then, but she goes on dates and I said, how do you meet them? How do you meet people? And then she told me she this. She just had a fully formed joke. That like. Uh, I don't think she thought of it as a joke necessarily. I mean, I didn't get the idea yeah. that it was something that she had polished, you know? I think she was just sort of surprised by it. And when she said it, she realized how ridiculous yeah. it was. And what I thought was interesting about this was a woman, uh, I was signing books after that show and a woman came and she slapped a piece of paper on the counter and said, here's my address so you can write me an apology for using that word on stage. Mm. And I think it's a perfect use of that word because you're quoting a woman and she said it by mistake. Yeah. So it's different than saying like, oh, that woman, she's such a cunt. That's completely different use than this. And, yeah. and I know a lot of people have a policy, like just a policy against that word, like never under any circumstances. And I myself, I try not to do that because, I mean, have a policy – you know, like if somebody came up to me on the street and called me a faggot, like I'm not – that's not going to make me happy for the rest <laughs> of the day. Do you know what I mean? But I don't have a policy yeah. against that word. Like I don't I'm, – I'm going to leave open the possibility that it can be said in a way that might make me laugh. But also in it would be a disservice to this person to not quote them how they spoke. Right. If you were to say um, – well, plus that he had a fear of the C word. I leaned across the table and said, the C word? Actually, I was thinking, like it just doesn't. Yeah, you would have to say the C word every time and yeah, it wouldn't make no sense. It doesn't really work. And also I think it's interesting how so many people have – there was something in The Guardian a while ago about Karen. You know, mm -hmm. someone was writing and they said Karen is the equivalent of the N word for women. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> in the first place, Karen is like 12 minutes old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? It's not – the equivalent. So just when people say the C word, and again, it's different if you go up to somebody and you call them that. Yeah. I can see how that's brutal, you know, but. Also, it has that this diary entry or this, this this entire story is predicated on everyone's awareness that it's not a, a proper word to use. If, if, if it was a word that didn't have meaning, it didn't hurt people's feelings, it would be a completely innocuous story to tell. The whole point of it right. is that it is that it is the point of it is that people call it the c word, and that you know 
that it's incorrect or improper in polite society or whatever. That is, she is assuming you don't know that, I guess. You you have a lot of comedy that comes from these sort of small moments from people you meet. How would you, could you describe the ear you have for other people's stories? I mean, she told it not knowing this was a story I'm going to tell David Sedaris tonight. However, you heard it and immediately like, well, this is a story I'm going to write down. This is a story I'm going to write down. This is this is a thing that you heard and and recontextualize it. Be like, this is whatever. What is this? What do you describe? What would you describe this as when you heard it? You're like this. You know, often when I talk to comedians, I'll talk about what causes them to decide to write a joke about something and and. They have a sense where like, oh, this triggers, this may be uncomfortable, that means I have a, that I should write a joke about, or this makes me angry and I'll write a joke about, it, even if the joke is not angry. Um, but you seem to have that with you hear a story and it triggers some sort of feeling in you, you're like, oh, there's something to that. Could you describe what that feeling is? Gosh. I mean, when she said that to me, I thought, that's what I live for. I mean, I yeah. live for, sometimes w- when I'm signing books, one thing I really miss about now, right, about pandemic is I don't I you know I don't have tons of friends mm-hmm. right but I love sitting at a table and meeting people at book signings and you talk to them for a minute or two minutes and it can be like just a beautiful thing and kind of the perfect yeah. sort of encounter and sometimes you get people and they have a story they're determined to tell you right oh you're going to love this this is material for your next book and it's never worth mm. reaching my notebook over and other times you meet somebody and they just tell you something that's so you know it's not anything that you meant to talk about you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, and you can see that it's sort of surprising for them as well yeah uh, and sometimes it can be triggered by a question I mean most often it does but I don't like I don't say to people, like I don't say, "How are you?" But if I say, "Like, when was the last time you cried?" Mm-hmm. and that, like that, that can be kind of dangerous because somebody sometimes someone will say, "It was last week when my fiance was killed in a car accident." And you're like, "Fuck, <laughs> I've got somebody yeah. crying on my hands." So that can be kind of a tricky question. But I just sort of try to feel the mood with a question. I mean, and try to kind of take someone in and ask the question based from you know it's a difference yeah. too be- between saying to somebody how do you have a sister and when was the last time you saw your sister and then because you know it just seems like most people have a sister and then they're kind of thrown because you know something about them mm-hmm. and I just something I pulled out of my ass but yeah. even even then the conversation kind of proceeds differently and I've just heard um, you know, gosh, uh, you know, this guy I met at a book signing and I said, uh, do you, what is it, do you have a job? Where do you work? And he said, I'm mentally ill mm. and that keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> Just such a good response, you know. But if you really believe that everybody's interesting, then, you know, sometimes people just get in their own way mm. and they think that they're interesting in this way and it's like, no, I'm, you know, that's not it. But you're like f- completely fascinating 
in this other, you know, in this other way. I mean, you know, we all have a persona that yeah. we present, and so sometimes the first thing that we need to do is just retire it. You yeah. know, it can be a hard thing to do, but uh, uh, I, I don't like when, like, I don't want to, like, if I'm signing books or whatever, I don't, I don't want anyone to leave until I've seen their humanity in a way, until I've seen that they're an actual real person. And sometimes they get in the way of that. So mm. it's like, okay. And sometimes it can take a while. But, yeah. I mean, everyone is a real person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Diary entry number two. August 24th, 2014. Rackham, West Sussex. I'm thinking that the Washington Redskins should keep their name, but change their logo from a Native American to either a redskin peanut or a redskin potato. It really is the perfect solution. And you know what? That really was the perfect solution. The perfect solution. Because on the one hand, they keep they keep their name, which is kind of an asshole thing to mm-hmm. do, but then they make their motto a redskin peanut or a redskin potato. <laughs> and it's just really hard to personify a peanut or a mm-hmm. potato and to make it look mighty, you know, the way that you want like a team mascot yeah, yeah. to be. That doesn't mean it's impossible. And a lot of people, if they looked at a redskin potato, they'd, they they might think it's a turd. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to kind of – a redskin peanut, like a peanut in a shell, you exactly, think, okay, yeah. that's a peanut. But you, it has to be – De-shelled. De-shelled to be But a also peanut. not de-skinned. Right. <laughs> So it's so it's not easy. Mm-hmm. The challenge isn't easy, but I I thought it was such a great solution, and I I, ever, I don't think of myself as a terribly bright person, but every now and then I come up with something, and I think that right there is the answer to the problem. Do you remember how that came up to you enough that you're like, I got it, I got to write this down, and I got to tell everybody. I think I read something in the paper about you know they were under pressure yeah. to change their name, and I thought, oh. That's all they do. Yeah. And because there's this company uh, that I buy Redskin Peanuts from in North Carolina. And so I think Redskin Peanuts were on my mind more than they would have been if, you know, maybe a lot of people, they wouldn't necessarily, a peanut's just a peanut to yeah. them. Um, what I like about this one is it's um, a very silly joke it's very i would call it stupid in a very nice way but i feel like as a humorist as time has gone on as these things happen to people who create versions of comedy for a living people focus on how profound your work is that that you they they take you so seriously and they like to talk about how serious you are but i feel like as you've as i think some of your work has gotten more serious i do feel like it has become more gleeful and sort of silliness at times was that important to you to make sure there's Things that are stupid or silly or just sort of light? I think stupid and silly are really complimentary words. Yeah. I think silliness is a great thing. So, yeah, I mean, I like that. Um, in in uh, your first collection of diary entries, Theft by Finding, you write, a diary teaches you what you're interested in. What, what do these entries teach you slash me that you're interested in? Well, I guess I'm interested in... Gosh, things that I'm interested in silliness. Yeah. And I'm interested in in I guess possible ways 
to use really objectionable language. Yeah. But it, it, I was wondering if people – had you read the Redskin one out loud? Mm-hmm. Were people offended or seemed to have any offense to it or backed up, back up like they sort of stopped, um, paused for a moment? Uh, no, I don't really notice it. I mean, I've never noticed that with that particular. But a lot of the angry mail I get mm-hmm. is um, I'm never going to buy any of your books ever again. I'm going to tell all my friends never to read any of your books ever again. And it's always like a scorched earth policy. And that just doesn't work with people, yeah. right? So there was this diary entry that I was reading on stage and – and uh, I remember even I told it to Phil Stiller, like I was at her at a house one day, and she roared with laughter. And so I read it on stage, and this woman came up afterwards, and she said – it was a Monica Lewinsky joke. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good joke. And she said, you know, Monica Lewinsky wasn't the one at fault there, mm-hmm. you know, and she didn't invent blowjobs. And it seems kind of unfair that all these years later. And then I thought, she's right. And I mean, you can't substitute any other name for it in the joke, you know, but there goes that. I mean, I didn't write the joke. You know, it was just something somebody told me and I would repeat it. But uh, that was a case where the woman... If, if she had said – I think it's important to say something in a way that people can hear, mm. you know. Um, then you can make – you know, you can make your point. Yeah. Um, but if you just sort of go, shame on you, that, that – I really I have a hard time believing that works on anybody. But when people think of personal essays, there tends to be a sentimentality associated to how people would write um, – about their lives that your work does not deal with in the same way. And I think your comedy is your comedy will be reflective of that. And I feel like there is a bit of if you're going to like how you approach storytelling, there should be a jokes are going to be part of that. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like ultimately your jokes are a reflection of ultimately how you also approach storytelling generally? Yes. I mean, that's what I want. I want the audience to laugh. I don't yeah. want... I wouldn't – maybe I just don't have the guts to get up in front of an audience and read something that's half an hour long and has no laughs in it. There are people who I think are fantastic who do that and I love them. But I can't be them. So I think this is my authentic self and that's all a part of it. But, you know, you you, you sacrifice, um, you know – you you don't win the you don't win the award mm-hmm. you know you may be nominated for the award but you never win it yeah if you're if you're up there and you're after laughs because it's like oh he's not serious as these other people because there's jokes in it there's right. I mean I I would rather get the laughs than be you know have the because what are you gonna do you can't, even if you put an award up in your office or something you're just an asshole if people walk in and you say well here's my pen award yeah. and here's my have you have, was there ever moments where you've had a I wouldn't say a crisis but I feel like even comedians I've talked to where they're like it is frustrating that I 
gone into a career where I can't just tell the truth on stage, right? That was like the whole idea with Hannah Gatsby's network. She's like, I need to tell you the truth without laughs. Have you, you know, over your long career, has there been days where you're like, why do I got to be funny all the time? Uh, gee. No, I guess because I'm... Uh, I mean, you don't, you don't, to me, like if you're going to tell a sorrowful story, you can be sorrowful and still get the laughs, yeah. you know, you don't have to kind of gloss over the kind of heavy parts of it. But I think, you know, I have a sister who committed suicide and I wrote about that, but and it was a really dark time for my family. But at that same time, I went to the supermarket um, with my brother and a couple of my sisters. And my brother did this great thing, which is wonderful. You go to the grocery store. And you know, often the vegetables are misted, right? Mm -hmm. And so my brother picked up a sprig of parsley that had been misted. And he snuck up behind me. And he went, ah-choo. And he whipped it through the air. And I just felt this spray on the back of my neck and I thought that a stranger had sneezed on me and it's such a and it's you know and it gets a really nice laugh in the story do you do you feel like the the comedy helps the sorrow be communicated uh I think it acts and act like is a pressure valve mm. and the it can so people will you know laugh they want to laugh and so they'll kind of they want to make a noise, you know, so it can release pressure in the story before we move on. I mean, often, you know, when I'm working on something and I read it in front of an audience and I go back to the room and rewrite it and read it and rewrite it, you know, I make check marks and I make marks on the paper and then I, like if something gets big laughs, I'm, you know, I put big check marks on it and I lay it all on the floor mm -hmm. so I can kind of see the flow of it. Um and, you know, also at the same time, if you have information you're trying to convey, the audience will start coughing. Mm -hmm. And that means they've checked out. So then good to know because they would be skimming if it was on the page. So then you say, okay, I guess I have to distribute that more evenly throughout the essay. So I'll move this here and I'll move this here and I'll move this here because it's just created a block and mm -hmm. people are just stopped by it. A thing that will happen with comedians um, is when they they get they get worried that if they build a fan base, is the laughs are too easy. They're like, well, they know me, they, and they're just laughing at that, or they mm. like me already. They're already laughing at that. Do you have you experienced anything like that? Do you do you worry about that? Do you try to account for? Oh, they just they're just laughing because they're my fans. Do you is that something you think about? Yeah, I worry about that. That's what you need ushers for. You know, if an usher comes up to you afterwards and says something. Then you think, okay, that worked out well. Because sometimes an usher will say to another usher, those people are laughing at everything he says. And I know exactly what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that when I see something and people are laughing at everything. And I think, I haven't laughed once. And I'm not being – I don't withhold. I think I'm generous with my laughter. Do you um, – I always wonder, do you feel like you're, you're, you're performing essentially stand-up comedy for an audience who never sees stand-up comedy? Well, I might have worried about it a few years ago, but I think pretty much everybody has Netflix now. So yeah. I think that they watch. That's fair. You know, I mean, I think if there's a comedy special, I was the last person to get Netflix. 
I heard you got it earlier this year. Yeah. And so that introduced me to comedy. I really knew nothing about it. I've heard you talk about um, Whoopi Goldberg's Broadway show was an influence on your writing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was 19, was it 1983 maybe? Yeah, around that. <clears throat> and um, she played these different characters and it was uh, on Broadway. And like one character was a guy named Fontaine who was a heroin addict. And one was uh, like a young black girl who wanted to be white. And one was um, like a severely handicapped young woman. And I liked the way that they moved. Like mm -hmm. you would be laughing really hard and then you would, ju would just take a turn and you would be devastated. And kind of questioning yourself, not beating yourself up, but questioning your earlier laughter. And I must have watched that, oh, I don't know, 50 times yeah. um, over and over and over and over again. But uh, I don't know that I'd seen stories told that quite that mm -hmm. way before. And it was something where either I want to do exactly that or this is a, a tone of a thing that is interesting to me. Like you applied it to your work. Did you immediately think to apply it to your work? Yeah. I mean, I was already, I was writing, but nobody had ever seen anything that I wrote. But uh, I just thought how I would like to be able to manipulate people that way. Mm. Is there anything in the last few years you've learned about creating comedy from listening to comedians talk about it? Is there anything that you feel like has come from it? Well, you can't argue an audience into laughing, right? They're going to do it or they're not. And the best you can do is try to figure out why they laughed and to figure without at the same time thinking, how can I do that again? Yeah. Because then you fall into that trap of or you 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 think okay well i can't change that in any way or people won't they won't like me anymore that's what they like and that's what i've got to do i mean a lot of times i look at the audience and i think what are you doing here like what brought you here i don't i mean i'm very glad that yeah. they came but i can't tell you why they're there i genuinely can't tell you why they're there and it, I'm fortunate that I have a pretty wide range of people in the audience, mm -hmm. you know. There'll be like a 14-year-old who saved up allowance money and is sitting next to, you know, somebody who's 80, uh, who's sitting next to like a truck driver. You know, truck drivers love audiobooks and yeah. listen to audiobooks all the time. Um, and if you told me, okay, you have to satisfy these people, I wouldn't know how. I honestly wouldn't yeah. know how. If you said, write one thing that all these people will enjoy, I don't know that I could do it. So I try not to have them in my head when I sit down. I mean, I wrote something, one of those CBS things that I just recorded. I laughed three times while writing something, which was like two pages long. And I laughed hard. But I don't know if... Anybody else? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I was at the Apple Store, and 
at a, I had a genius bar appointment, and there was a woman on the other side of the room, and I got the idea that she was very well-known in her field. It was in Soho, so mm-hmm. I thought maybe she's a, choreac- a choreographer, maybe she's a, a you know an artist. She was 85 years old, and she was dressed like a witch, but really, really nicely. Like, I bet mm-hmm. her dress... That uh, was at least $4,000. And it was like a long black dress, but it was, you know, it had a, like a kind of a petticoat mm-hmm. thing under it and she had really nice witch shoes on. I mean, I don't mean she was in costume. I mean, this was her yeah. thing. And I said to the guy waiting on him, I said, God, that woman over there is amazing. And he said, you should go over and chat her up. <laughs> he said, you know, hey, man, you never know. And she's like, she was 25 years older than me. But to this guy, we were both the same, mm-hmm. you know, because he couldn't. And so I was imagining, you know, him saying, hey, you know, you never know. You like soft food. She likes soft food. Invite her out for some baked apples and see what happens. And I just hadn't thought of baked apples in so in so long. It just made me laugh. And I don't know that anybody else would laugh at a baked apple like mm-hmm. that. But to me, it just – it just uh, and and again, so it's that's a thing when you do something like that on television. It's not like you've got a live audience and you think, God, that baked apple thing really worked. Who knows yeah. how it works on television? Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about you, you, your need to perform. You've you've just you've talked about how you really enjoy it. You you've always enjoyed reading, especially, and I think. Um, I put it in this terms, which is sort of I think a lot of people who create things for uh, for a living are, do so for a certain amount of a need for approval. But the 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 stand up comedian is uniquely needy in mm-hmm. so much as anytime I I have a certain amount of a need for what I do. But I anytime I've done a reading or I perform stand up, I've only done it once. But like people laugh and I was like, oh thank God I don't need this much intense acute approval all at once. Um, Where is that? F- for you as a person who does perform so much, it is do you feel like you have a similar need to – as a comedian, have you had to come to terms with needing to perform? I have a bottomless need for approval and affection um, and there's no end to it. Like there's not any amount that would be – that I would say, oh, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Like that well is filled now. It's just uh, – no, there's no, no such thing. Is mm-hmm. enough. There's no such thing as too much, and it's embarrassing, but there you have it. Um, is that I don't know you, where it comes from. Is it something that you had to accept? You know, were you trying to be like, I want to be a writer, and I shouldn't need this? Was it? Is the the performing part of you something that you had to reconcile? Well, um, when I was in high school, you know, and we would let's say we had to read. Portrait of the Artist is a Young Man. But then yeah. the teacher thought, you know, knows nobody read it, right? So you have to wind up reading it in class. And the teacher would call on people to read. And and I just remember even back then, I'd think, call on me, call on me, 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 me. And other people would read and I would think, what is your problem? Like, how can you not read that? It's mm-hmm. right there on the page. How can you not do that? So I always liked reading out loud. And then I joined the drama club, but memorizing things put just to put too much pressure on me and I didn't know what to do with my hands when I was on stage you know mm-hmm. I was a kind of actor who my hands were in my pockets all the time and then I remember the first time I read something I wrote I was in college and it was in a writing class and I thought that's it 
that's what I want to do. I want to read out loud things that I wrote. How did I not know this before? Because I tried, yeah. you know, again, with drama or performance art. But the performance art, I wasn't being honest. And so I just thought, you know, you needed to be um, – you know, you kind of needed to stand there and pour sand out of a rubber boot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so the, it was the worst kind of empty performance art, and that's the kind of I engaged in. And that wasn't satisfying to me. But to read something I wrote that I thought was funny and then to have the audience, you know, my classmates laugh, then that just changed my life right there. And I just thought, Okay, I'm turning, changing direction. I was in art school, mm. change direction, and that's where we're going. Um, and I think I actually prefer writing about the smaller things. I think more people can relate to them, and it's more of a challenge. You know, you have to. I don't know that I could have done that earlier on. Yeah, I imagine by writing stories, stories you sort of internalize the rhythm of it without having to redo you you sort of you can spot stories where other people don't see stories yeah i mean plus well because it's what you do for a living and yeah. so you're thinking oh there's no story here or you're thinking i mean sometimes you have to work at it a little bit i mean every time i go to the beach with my family there's a story Mm-hmm. So I was at the beach with my family earlier this summer, and on the last day of the vacation, a water spout formed over the ocean, and everybody ran out of their houses with their cameras, and then it raced toward the land, and then all those people <laughs> were like running for their lives. And I thought, well, if that's not an ending, I don't know what it is. Yeah. So you know, so I have my ending. So I just work backwards from there. Um, have you ever seen the movie The Prestige? No. Um, I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I reference it a lot. Um, but from my memory of it, it is, it's about magicians, but the idea is about, um, creating to, to really be an artist, you have to essentially live your life in the creation of your art. You don't sort of create mm. light, create art from your life. You sort of live your life to the creation of it. And some comedians I know do that, but I think of almost anyone I've interviewed, you are the person I think most of who's sort of living your life knowing that you are at any moment could be creating something that can be it. Do you feel like that resonates? Do you feel like that's how you, you ultimately see it, that you're like now are often on the clock, you're sort of in service of creating stories? Yeah, I mean, I'm always on the clock. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Well, because it's what I, you yeah. know, it's just what I do for a living. And so... That's that's why it sometimes bothers me when someone says that didn't. That's not true. It's like, I, it's like I, I'm a professional, yeah. you know, and I carry a notebook and I write everything down. And other people, you know, they, they, just, they don't. It's not like it's going to help them, mm-hmm. you know, in their job in any way to know that someone has a sign in their house that says, "I dare you to catch me smiling." But to me, that's. That's going to come in handy one day. So I'm going to write it down in my notebook and I'm going to write it down in my, you know, there was something, I'm going through old diaries for this second volume of the diary book. And I don't remember right now where I heard it, but it was like a Christian channel or a Christian thing. And this, they were interviewing this man and he said, when my son and daughter were born, I said, 
please God, don't let my son be a faggot and my daughter be a slut. And he didn't. He reversed it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was telling that to Hugh's mother and she said, now, no one said that. And Mm. it's like, well, I wrote it down in my diary because I I didn't make it up when I wrote it down in my diary. And, you know, like this, we're talking about cheap people. I yeah. asked the audience, I said, oh, I'm collecting stories about cheap people. So this girl says, my father's so cheap that when I was in high school and people rolled our house, he made us collect the toilet paper and use it. And if it got rained on, we had to dry it out. And then we had this toilet paper with weirdly, oddly textured toilet paper in um, glad bags in our, and that's another thing. Hugh's mother said, um, no, no, she didn't do that. And it's like, what? I'm so glad I'm not that kind of person. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm not the kind of person that somebody tells me something that's astonishing and just funny and lovely and that I don't say, no, that did, you know, I don't believe you. I don't, yeah. don't want to be that person. It is, it is funny. You, you know, there was a, it was, it's amazing to go back to that a little over a decade ago, there are people who are really into the idea that your stories weren't 100% true. Because, I, you know, I th- always think of them as a person who sort of comes from the world of comedy. Your stories are true in ways comedian stories are true, which is you maybe would remove the parts that are not true or exaggerate things so they feel like it. they're emotionally true because the, because the facts might not be as true as the truth is. What What is the truth you're after or trying to convey? I guess I'm just trying to tell a story in an efficient way. Right? Like sometimes my boyfriend will say, you know, I was there and Charles was there and you left us out. And it's like, yeah, I left you out because you didn't contribute to the story. I mean, in the opening paragraph, I've got people at a table. If I name eight people at a table, I've just lost my audience Mm -hmm. because I've got an audience who's sitting in an auditorium and they've they're going to put your name in their head and Charles's name and Robert's name in their head. And then the three of you never show up again. And so then the audience is like, okay, I don't trust this guy anymore because he keeps giving me information and I'm trying to hold on to it. And then it comes to nothing. So I just want to tell the story as efficiently as possible. And sometimes that means... If you want to get laughs out of it, it means kind of compressing it. And if you've got all these other details in the middle, people are going to be asleep by the time you get to the funny part. Yeah. You know? So I think it's the same thing as it's the same way I tell a story out loud. You know? I mean, if you talk to Hugh, you know, and you ask him, Oh, I don't know. Hugh and I can witness the same thing. And if you ask him about it, it's more like he's on the witness stand and mm-hmm. he's giving you all of the evidence and all that stuff. And it's it's really boring, you know? It really is boring. <laughs> and in a courtroom, yeah, I want him. Yeah. But in on a stage, I want me. Um Recently, someone asked me if if I could write a memoir, and I, and I, I said literally, it would be impossible. I, I I do not remember enough. That I don't remember that much at all. But but more so, I don't believe my memories as being correct enough that I'd feel like comfortable writing them down. What is your relationship to your memory? Um, I don't think I have a better 
memory than other people. Um, I always think that's interesting, like with parents, you know, when you your parents will try to do something and bring you somewhere and then they expect you to remember it for the rest of your life. But what you actually remember is, you know, seeing your dad on the toilet at the time and forgot to close the bathroom door or something. Or, you know, I remember seeing a, 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 a snake swallow a toad in our driveway like that. I'll never forget. But then my parents are like, remember we took you to see? It's like, no, I don't have any memory of that. Once I started keeping a diary, it changed, Yeah, you know, because then, and yeah. I was 20 when I started keeping a diary. And a lot of the things I wrote in my diary early on, like I had a better memory for high school, you know, and junior high school when I was 20 years mm -hmm. old than I do now. So a lot of that stuff I wrote down in early diaries, but I don't think I have a better, maybe a little bit better than most people, but not... You know, because when I go on tour, I write everything down, right? So when mm. you go on a book tour, let's say you have a media escort. And the media escort picks you up at the airport <clears throat> in Cleveland and takes you to all your interviews and to the bookstore. So when I go to Cleveland, I say, Marilyn, you know, how are your grandchildren? I remember your son was, you know, he just got out of the Navy. But mm -hmm. then he was thinking about getting married to this woman with red hair. Oh my God! And I'm like, well, all I did was read my diary from the last time I was in Cleveland, Gosh. you know, before I landed, so <laughs> I could refresh my memory. So, I, but it's gotten me this reputation, like he remembers everything. Um, in in the final piece of the best of me, unbuttoned, which which also came out in the New Yorker earlier this year, you wrote about your your father dying, and as a twist, oh, though, he didn't die. As, yeah, as the twist, he didn't die. It was a story, especially if you like read the first paragraph, it's like. You know, he's he's finally writing about his father dying. But I, I was it made me think that when he when he does die, there are a lot of people who in general, there are a lot of people waiting for him to die in a way who are like, oh, he's going to die. And then eventually David's going to write about it. Um, how do you feel about your fans have a genuine relationship or possible ownership to to your life and your family's life like that? Well, my father. I, I meet a lot of people who say, I love your father. And I don't really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, he's just a difficult person, right? I, I don't. But I, I, think, I think that's something I've done for my father is made him mm -hmm. beloved to a lot of people. Um, and I don't know that I set out to do that, but... I think of that as, I don't know, like I generally think I'm a pretty poor son, you know, but then I think, well, that's a thing a good son would do, yeah, yeah. you know, like a really good son would do. Um, my dad, he, he, we, we had this argument a couple of years ago and he said, when I die, the name dies with me. And I said... <laughs> I said, well, speak for yourself. Yeah, and I yeah. said, it's, it's on 16 million books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt really good to say that. Um, but how do you feel that you've done that for people? That you, you're, these people have a better relationship, hypothetically, with your dad than you did as yeah. an actual person who's lived your life. Yeah. And how do you, I, mean, I mean, a lot of it is just the illusion. People have the illusion that they know yeah. me or that they know someone in my family. Um, but... Again, when it comes to my dad, I, I guess I, good people 
right, aren't necessarily good characters, mm. right? So not everybody that you meet is a good person to write about because sometimes they're just nice, yeah. you know, or they're supportive <laughs> yeah. or they're, you know, I'm lucky that I know a lot of funny people, I think, you know. I mean, you know, so if I do, you know, I wrote this essay about my sister Amy a while ago, and all I, all I have to do is quote her, and then, you know, people are falling out of their seats laughing. Yeah. It's because she's funny, you know. Um, And I, I don't, but my, my father is a good person to write about, you know. I don't know that he's a good person, but he's a good character, you know. And so I really like the fact that so many people like him yeah i and you know but in the same way that if someone's not your parent or some you know then you can get a huge kick out of them because yeah. they're not you know you like them like you any author would like if anyone liked any of their characters yeah i like my father as a character i think <laughs> that sounds really awful but i guess <laughs> I guess it's true. Um, I had a producer once point out that though this is a show hypothetically about jokes, it is often also a show about people who had parents that die. Um, this is the nature huh. of maybe the guest that I, I I find. And, you know, you were writing before your your mother passed, um, but you didn't necessarily hit it big. Um, but she is a major player in your stories. I think about how often I feel like you mark time as a sort of like B.C. and A.D. of, of it. Um do you feel like she is a muse or more so do you feel like it, it's it's just nice to have her existence out there and, and, and have had a way to crystallize your memory of her? Like when you write about her, do you feel like is it more alive than it, when you just think about her? Has has writing kept her in your life in a way that maybe if you weren't a writer, it wouldn't? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I adored my mother, loved my mother, don't remember ever fighting with my mother. Uh, I saw somebody a while ago hanging off of his mother. He's like this kid who's like 14, just hanging off of her. And I thought, oh, I ached when I saw that, you know, mm -hmm. because I was very affectionate that way with my mom. And uh, it meant a lot to me to make, like my mother would have loved an audience, mm -hmm. loved it. You know, she... And if, and if she were alive now, I'd bring her on tour with me. I'd have her introduce me. I'd have her sit next to me at the book signing table. She'd love every second of it. Um, and so it meant a lot to me to sort of introduce her to people and have people love her. Uh, that, and, and that's something like my dad didn't understand because I wrote something about my mother's drinking but what he didn't understand is that just made people love her more. It just makes her more real. Mm. You know, my dad, I think he's like a lot of people his age. He's, he's inarticulate when it comes to talking about certain things. You know, like if you ask him about his mother, she was my mother and I loved her. She was wonderful. But if you say, how was she wonderful? He can't tell you anything, you know. But if he said, oh, she used to slap me across the face, you know, every time I... uh you know, gosh, every every Sunday she would say, Louie, hey, look, and slap me across the face. Then I would have thought, oh, now I see why you liked her so much. <laughs> or it would just made her real in yeah, a yeah. way. And so it's 
And if you present a, a picture of somebody that's just flawless and all they're doing is good things and saying kind things and putting dinner in front of you, it's not it's not real to anybody. And trust people. You know, you can make somebody, you can show their flaws and people will still love them and ex- and accept them as a you you don't have to you don't have to whitewash everything. In Calypso, um, which is you know a book that talks about mortality in a lot of ways, you, you talk about approaching the age your your mother passed as you, you're getting closer. Um, actually, I printed out the passage if you can read it. It's a short one. Sure. In our visits, my mother was always sixty-two, the age she was when she died. In 1991, that seemed old to me. Though now, of course, I'm almost there myself. Before I know it, she and I will be contemporaries. Then I'll overtake her, and how strange will that be, to have a mother young enough to have been my daughter? When that day comes, will I think her naive? It is a phenomenon people have the the age their parent died in their head as possible age in which they will die. Um, and you've now overtaken her, as you say in the story, you're, you're, you're older. Has that affected you in ways? Has it affected how you approached your career? Um, did any of it influence your, like, why you might put together a, a greatest hits book? You're like, oh, I need to sort of secure my legacy? Well, first off, I just finished this long biography of Philip Larkin, you mm-hmm. know, the British poet. And his father died when he was 64, I believe. And Philip Larkin said, I'm going to die when I'm 64. And he died when he was 64. Oh. So I was really surprised because I thought I was going to die when I was 62. <coughs> and then my sister Gretchen told me she's going to die when she's 62. And she's she's 62. She's going to be 62 next year. And I don't want her to die. So, and then I thought, oh, that's what that sounds like when you say, oh, I'm going to die when I, that's what that, nobody wants that. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, I guess I, I tell myself that we're younger than our parents. Uh, 60 now is really different than 60. You know, like when you, when you, when you see people like in photographs of like in the 1940s who were 60 years old, like. There's nothing youthful about them. You know, mm-hmm. they had their hair in a bun and they, you know, they weren't trying to, and maybe that was it. Like they weren't trying to be young. Yeah. You know, they weren't, they wouldn't have had sneakers on. I have sneakers on. Uh, and then I tell myself too, well, my mom looked old when she was 62, but I don't. But all you got to do is like put a mirror under you and, you know, or see your, lay on the sofa and look at something on your iPad and then see your face reflected in the screen. And it's like, no, I look just, I look just as old as she did. But it's odd to be older. And yeah, I worry all the time that I'm going to forget her because we weren't like videotape people Mm. either, you know, so it's not like I have moving pictures of my mother. It's not like I have a recording of her voice. And that's terrifying when you start to forget somebody. We'll be right back with more David Sedaris. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. 
Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with David Sedaris. Based on interviews you've done, I'm going to ask a question I believe uh, you, you, you would be most interested in being asked, which is how much did you get paid for this book? I got paid $200,000 for it. Which is interesting to me because it didn't occur to me that mm. I would be paid, really, because everything already existed, right? And so that honestly didn't even come into my mind. And so then when they said, okay, and we can offer this amount of money, I thought, really? I thought, oh, <laughs> great. But I didn't – I didn't – I honestly didn't expect it. Yeah. I don't think of it the same way I would think of a new book, Yeah. right? So that's kind of how much you get paid for a new book. Well, to tell you the truth, I get paid a whole lot for a new book. You <laughs> that's know, what like I assume. yeah, a whole lot. Um, but I think my publicist told me that I have sixteen million books, like mm -hmm. in the world, you know, the world over. So that's why you get paid a lot because you've got you know people. You, they're going to be making money. Yeah. So that's the difference. I mean, I remember reading the. You know, those articles earlier this year on how much people got as advances for yeah. their my, – my first book, my advance was $50,000 for two books and I couldn't believe it. I could not – I was just over overjoyed. I couldn't believe that I was getting – I'd never had $50,000 before and – but uh, – and so – it's odd, I mean, because, you know, obviously your life changes when you have money, yeah. right? Because you don't have to worry about certain things. But I don't know that it fundamentally changed who I am, you know? Like I – when I'm in England, I spend between four and eight hours a day picking up trash on the side of the road. And I can't – I don't have a choice. I don't – I honestly don't have a choice. Yeah. I have to do it. I'm compelled to do it because it's there and it so bothers me that it's there. And I never learned to drive a car. And, you know, there's a grocery store seven miles away. And so I'll go to the grocery store and I'll come out and then it's pouring rain and I have to walk home seven miles in the rain with wet bags of garbage and I think, how is this my life? Like, I'm, aren't I rich? <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, why, 
why do I have to walk seven miles home in the rain with wet garbage? But that's because I'm me. So even though I have money, I'm still fundamentally me. You know, I've I've talked to a lot of comedians about the corona about coronavirus and and how their lives has changed, and especially established comedians have have really wondered about how important the travel is, how important is doing something that needs an audience. Some haven't. Some are, are as obsessed with it as, as ever. Ha, what have you learned about yourself as it relates to a performing the performing part of yourself from this time being unable to do it? Well, I've written a number of I've written a lot since the pandemic started, but I don't know if any of it's good or not. Yeah. You know, because I haven't had a chance to read it out loud in front of an audience. And like those CBS things I just recorded, gee, if I'd had my way, I would have read them out loud, you know, umpteen times and then rewritten them and got them exactly. And I did the best I could, but without the audience to tell me how I did, I'm not, I have no idea. Will really. You, as long as this goes, will you just still, will they ultimately remain unfinished until you can read them in front of an audience? Yeah, they'll remain unfinished. I mean, I'll think of them. I mean, gee, I probably wrote every one of them over 12 times. Yeah. But, gee, that's the first 12, you know, and yeah. there's still like eight more rewrites in them as far as I'm concerned. And then I, um, you know, it's interesting too. I don't know that the coronavirus was as much of a change as George Floyd mm. being a change, because then the mood changed in the country. You know, and that's like the first time ever the New Yorker returned an essay to me, because it was about entertaining during the coronavirus, because <laughs> we had all these dinner parties. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the New Yorker bought this essay and there was like a window of time for them to run it and they didn't run it in that window and then George Floyd happened. And then they're like, well, no, we can never run this now because it's so frivolous and it's so bodacious, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's frivolity, you know. Um, And that changed like mood-wise what – like there was this magazine that wanted – they wanted people to write about – uh, southern Christmas traditions, right? And I'm not Southern. I grew up in the South, but I wasn't born there, yeah. right? And so I wrote this thing about every Christmas. You know, my mother was in charge of Christmas, and we just had these fantastic Christmases, and my mother died, and we weren't sure what to do, you know? So we tried having Christmas at my dad's house, but he couldn't even be bothered to have milk and coffee in the house. You know, he just wasn't, unpre- you know, he, it was just not going to happen. So we started having it at different sisters' houses and it just still wasn't working. And then one Christmas, Amy said, let's go see a movie that only has black people in it. So that's what we started doing every Christmas, mm. right? So the magazine's like, we're going to need to cut that part out. And it's like, why? We weren't making fun of the movies that we yeah. saw. And it's just, it's like then this year we saw Waiting to Exhale and this year we saw this and this year we saw this. And, and, you know, but they were so nervous about saying, and it's like, that is Mm anti-racist. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you, but everybody suddenly became so completely self-conscious and nervous about anything, especially when it came to something that was supposed to be funny. Yeah. You know? So where does that leave you? Some of your 
most beloved pieces are about frivolous things. You, you've written about shopping in ways that people really love. And I, and do you feel like you will avoid those? Or do you feel like it's a matter of like, until the audience can tell me how much of this they can take, I won't know. You just don't know where your the sort of radar is on these things. Right. If, if theaters had been opened, I would be out there and I could test and I could see how. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but all I have to go by are like magazine editors feeling like, you know, they put their finger in the air and feeling like, oh, you know, like this, this won't do. Um, but then I feel like it's fraudulent to write about it like super earnestly if that's not, you know, if you're a super earnest person, then yeah. that's fine. But if you're not... You know, people, you'll feel false in a way that is more insulting than yeah. not doing it. I mean, I feel like I can always sense that falseness from other people. So why wouldn't they be able to mm. sense it from me? So that's something really. Uh, but again, you can't be out there. You can't be in front of an audience. So you can't really tell. I had to do, you know, I. Everything got canceled, right? But I had this thing at a university that I did, and I had to do it remotely, and I'd never done it, yeah. anything like that remotely. And my agent called me afterwards and said, how did it go? And I said, I have absolutely no idea how it went. Because if you're doing a Q&A, the audience tells you, you're taking too long to answer these questions, Yeah. but you don't have an audience, how do you know? And an audience is... You know, laughing, and you think, "Okay, I'm onto something." And but the audience, you don't know. Yeah. I have no idea how it went. Do you, Do you miss an audience most as part of your writing process? Do you miss the, the connection of it most? Do you miss the money most? I miss um, being adored. Mm-hmm. Is what I miss. Yeah, I mean, I, I miss them as a teacher too. I yeah. miss them telling me I miss them telling me that really works or I don't know what you were thinking there but that's not working at all or boring I miss the even the traveling part yeah the, even the icky parts of traveling you know even when you're like in a shitty hotel or even when your planes get canceled I miss all of that not just all of it I didn't but one thing is though I sure appreciated it when I did it. You know, there'd be times and you'd think, oh, really? I have to do this today? But then I signed books before a show as well as after. And then he signed books before. And then you think, oh, that's I'm doing this for Paul. That's what I'm doing this show for. And then you get excited. Yeah. And then you're like, can't wait to get on the stage. You know, you could read something, have something you're working on. And at the beginning of the tour, you'd absolutely love it. And then you're sick to death of it a few weeks later. But then... You get a good microphone and you get a good audience Mm -hmm. and then it's like you never read it before and you find brand new moments in it. And I miss all of that just terribly. Um, So just as we talked about uh, beginnings at the beginning, uh, as we get towards the end, I want to talk about endings. Uh, If you'll indulge, uh, can you read? Um, an ending that has always stuck with me from the first time I read it, which is the ending of The Spirit World, which is from Calypso and is in The Best of Me. Um, 
the the story starts talking about sort of disbelief in certain spiritual things and Amy going to a psychic and saying she she spoke to your sister Tiffany who as you mentioned um, committed suicide. So I will give you your book. Sure. The last time I saw my sister Tiffany was at the stage door at Symphony Hall in Boston. I just finished a show and was getting ready to sign books when I heard her say, David, David, it's me. We hadn't spoken in four years at that point, and I was shocked by her appearance. Tiffany always looked like my mother when she was young. Now she looked like my mother when she was old, though at the time she couldn't have been more than 45. It's me, Tiffany. She held up a paper bag with the Starbucks logo on it. Her shoes looked like she'd found them in a trash can. I have something for you. There was a security guard holding the stage door open, and I said to him, Will you close that, please? I'd filled the house that night. I was in charge, Mr. Sedaris. The door, I repeated. I'd like for you to close it now. And so the man did. He shut the door in my sister's face, and I never saw her or spoke to her again. Not when she was evicted from her apartment, not when she was raped, not when she was hospitalized after her first suicide attempt. She was, I told myself, someone else's problem. I couldn't deal with her anymore. Well, the rest of my family said, it was Tiffany. Don't be too hard on yourself. We all know how she can be. Perhaps like the psychic, they were just telling me what I needed to hear, something to ease my conscience and make me feel that underneath it all, I'm no different from anyone else. They've always done that for me, my family. It's what keeps me coming back. Thank you. Can you talk about writing that ending? We were talking about psychics, and Hugh, I believe, said, they just tell you what you want to hear. It's what keeps you coming back. Mm. And so I didn't mean – that wasn't the original ending for the essay, and I didn't mean to talk about shutting the door in my sister's face. I didn't want to bring that up necessarily. It, it makes me look monstrous, you know. And But the essay wasn't ending, and it just – was there was a fork, you know, often you go back, then you go back from the beginning and you go upriver mm. and then you say, oh, it's right here is where the problem is. And then I thought, before I knew it, I was writing about having the door shut in her face and then the ending just came naturally, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was, it needed that bit of information. It surprised me that I included it. But the second I wrote it down, it was false not to include it. It would just be... Um, hiding it in order to make myself look better. It would be phony yeah. for me not to include it in a way that it wasn't phony when it was never there. But yeah. then once it was there and then thinking, oh, I got to get rid of that because I don't want people knowing that about me. Yeah, and, you would – or in like if you read it and you would know that you didn't include that part and you would feel phony about it or you also feel like it would read phony. You knew what that's – you knew what true felt for this story. Yeah, it would be phony for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, well, I think when I was younger, too, it would just be too much work because then you think, well, okay, how can you mourn this person? But then you shut the door in the person's face the last time you saw them. So how can you grieve this person? You know, you mm. just did that. But of course you can do it. You can hate somebody and you can grieve when they die. And, and the reader, I think, can understand both those 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're just doing a disservice to the reader when you're thinking that they can't kind of accept the fact that you would be, a, you would you would kind of treat somebody poorly and yeah. mourn their loss. You you as as you said you, you that moment you you come off as a, a monster in a way you're you're monstrous that is. Uh, it it, make, it reminds me of the fact that the book, the the, the collection, your your greatest hits collection, I call it, um, is titled "The Best of Me," which is such an interesting way of putting it. Which I understand it means the best of your work, but there's something of this might be one of the harsher things you've done, or one at least the harsher things you wrote about. But it's included in a collection of the best of you. How do, what is what does it mean to reconcile those things? That the best of you includes the the worst of you. Uh, yeah, I think the best of me includes writing about the worst of me, mm. you know. I mean, not the behavior wasn't the best of me, but I think the writing of it was the best of me. Mm-hmm. I guess I just thought of, you know, oh, the Sumsung got the best of me. That's why I thought of that as the title. I yeah. mean, I just, um, but yeah, it's probably, the whole book is probably that way, like the worst behavior. <laughs> But it's interesting me. the way you put it that way. It's like the readers are getting the best of you, which is like the the best of you is your the writing of it, not necessarily the best of your behavior, but the best of you is the writing of yeah. it. Yeah. But that's interesting to me because, you know, I heard from somebody a while ago and they said, oh, we're reading you're in class and the debate is like how horrible, you know, what a bad person. Is, is he a bad person? Yeah. And I thought. Oh, really? I, for some reason, I wouldn't even think that would be a part of the discussion. I thought it would just be about writing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not about Well, they think somebody... of you as a character as well. Right, but that's a character of yeah. me, and that's a little bit different. It, it is weird to tell you, the person, that it's – well, it's, it's the thing that happens when they are equating it in a way. We're like, well, you wrote this thing. So it's, it's you know what you're doing. So to imply that what you wrote is an indication of a moral question about who you are is an interesting conversation to it, it 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 is not about you the author. It is about this character that you wrote, but they're not discussing it as you the character. They're discussing it as you the author. Yes. The <laughs> it as best as you can. How is the writer of that passage the, the same guy who wrote the redskin joke and the the joke the c word dire entry oh well uh um i mean there are laughs in that story you know they're not at the ending yeah. of it but there are plenty of laughs in that story earlier mm-hmm. i don't have a hard time seeing them as the same person i mean if i'd backed up a page yeah you know there would have been laughs in that uh, maybe two. I don't think maybe maybe another difference is. I mean, when when I'm if I'm reading out loud in front of an audience, I'm 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 thinking of myself as entertaining. I'm entertaining mm-hmm. the audience, right? So it's easier to entertain people with these short little diary entries that aren't connected necessarily to anything, that are almost like jokes. It's easier and it's quicker to entertain yeah. people that way than it is to say, I'm going to tell you a story and it's going to take 25 minutes and it's going to be pretty depressing. Yeah. You know, the ending, it's, it's going to be pretty depressing. 
uh, you know, because at the end of that story, you can't you can't really jump into something else. Mm. You know what I mean? Because people are still there, sort of at the ending of that story. <laughs> <laughs> That sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but uh, because this is uh, comedy, it's a, a laughing round. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? A favorite joke joke? Uh, yeah. What's the difference between a Camaro and an erection? What? I don't have a Camaro. <laughs> um, I usually ask people if there's a joke they wish they wrote, but is there a story that you wish you wrote? that you could steal, you wish you could put into your offer? I don't know how you do it since your story's about yourself, but is there a thing you've read and you wish, like, I wrote that? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's uh, Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, mm-hmm. uh, Wells Tower. It's a short story about Vikings. And you think, oh, my God, how do you write a short story about Vikings? And it is fantastic. Fantastic. And it's the last paragraph of that. Anytime I just want... To raise the skin on my arms, all I have to do is is read that. Um, you are, you have been living in New York during the pandemic, and you, you famously walk a lot. Um, do you have favorite New York City routes that you walk? Do you have the same certain routes you're like, oh, today I'm going to do my favorite route, which is X? Well, because I'm 63, it's all about a bathroom. So you can't walk, you know, you can't walk like 15 miles without knowing where you're going, mm. you know, you, without having that planned out. In the days of yore, you know, you could go to a hotel, you could go to a museum, there are lots of, you know, toilets you could find. So um, I have to pretty much have it all, my route all planned out by the bathroom. I usually start, I go out after midnight. You know, when I walk for five miles after midnight so I can wake up in the morning and have five miles under my belt. And one time I caught myself, and I'm not proud to say it, and it's never going to happen again, uh, ducking into Central Park to pee in Central Park. And if everybody did that, can you imagine how disgusting it would be? And I was so ashamed of myself. Yeah. But I didn't know what else to do. I just overestimated. Um, Do you have a top three favorite drag race contestants? Uh, yeah. Let's see. Alyssa Edwards, just because I don't think she knows, at the beginning anyway, she didn't know she was funny. And that made her all the funnier to me. Uh, gosh. Uh, like Jujube was always a good one. Just because I thought she was really smart, too. And just really, I kind of liked her sense of humor. And I liked... I liked the way that she was friends with people. Like she was never seemed like uh, pretending, like she was playing a friend on television. Yeah, she always seemed like a genuine person to me. And uh, Dita Ritz, yeah, Dita Ritz. She was just a joy, I thought, yeah. and a really good dancer. Um, is there a recent item of clothing you're particularly proud of buying? Proud of buying. Or excited to wear when people will get to look at you wearing your clothing? Yeah. I bought this jacket, and it's a Come de Garçon jacket, and it's like a sport coat, black sport coat. But then there are layers of ruffles spilling from the hem. And it looks like something that you would wear 
to a funeral in Gone with the Wind if you were transitioning, maybe. Mm. And it's just, and it's really heavy. And it's crazy. It's just crazy. And I'm so excited to wear it on my tour, and then the tour got canceled. So I don't really have anywhere, any place to wear it. I thought, well, it would work if you had to go on TV, too. But I have to go on TV in a few weeks, but it's a daytime show. So it's a bit much for a daytime show. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, you're friends with David Rakoff. I'm, I'm a big fan of David Rakoff. Mm. I don't hear you talk about him often because I, I imagine people aren't like, please just tell me a story about David Rakoff. But do you have any story about David Rakoff that comes to mind? Well, David Rakoff was one of those people that I can't, I can't wrap my mind around his death like I can't everybody else that I've ever known who died I could accept it but I can't accept David's death and I can't dwell on it and I can't reflect on it I met David the first time I was on the radio he wrote me a letter and I guess that was like 1992 and I wrote him back and it turned out he lived just down the street from me Mm. And he and I got together and we went out for a cup of coffee. And I just laughed so hard. And I went home afterwards and I called my sister Amy and I said, I just found the director to our play because she and I were working on a play. And David had never directed anything before, but I thought somebody's so funny. And obviously it was clear he could do anything. Yeah. And then he was in the plays after that. And the greatest joy was going into the dressing room. Do you know Jackie Hoffman? Have you talked to her? And it would be David Rakoff and Jackie and Jody Lennon and uh, uh, Sarah Thayer in the dressing room, not running lines, but just being funny. And there was no better place than just, there was no more joyful place than being in the dressing room while they were getting ready for a show and just laughing, God, just laughing so hard. David was really good. And you go with him to a movie, and it was like he had a tape recorder in his head, and he would come out and he would recite, not lines, but I mean whole scenes, everybody's dialogue, verbatim. Mm. He was talented in a way that I've never, you know, sometimes people will say that I'm witty and I'm not. Witty is funny and smart. David Rakoff was witty. And you had to be as smart as him to be witty. And he had, there was something old-fashioned about the way that he was funny. Yeah. Like in another era, he would have been, you know, on all of those television shows that Wits appeared on. Yeah. And he would have had his own radio program. And he would have been, you know, not that he wasn't celebrated now, but his brand of intelligence the moment, his moment, I felt had was like in a golden age, yeah. and and I think that people like him, they don't come up, they don't come around very often. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can buy the best of me wherever books are sold. David doesn't use social media, but there are accounts run for him at David Sedaris on Twitter and at David Sedaris Books on Instagram. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Rate our view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. 
Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Kelly Conaboy. Have a good one.